0: Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Hello... out there. It's disgusting how greedy some people can be. Whether it's a taste of fame, money, power, blood. For some, once they have it, whatever it is, they only want more. Their appetite growing with each feeding. Though it's not an appetite so much as an empty pit that grows inside the greedy. Greed is insatiable. There's never enough. And it will disguise itself as ambition. It will lie and cheat and steal in order to feed, lashing out like a rabid dog if you question its intentions. So leave the greedy be. Stand back. Don't get bit. In time, the greedy will consume even themselves. And let's talk about something else now. What do you think the chances are of stumbling across a dead body in your lifetime and if you did would you consider yourself unlucky or lucky i mean for the body's loved ones them being found is probably on the side of luck but for you this kind of thing could really screw you up for a while depending on the circumstances i mean for me if it was broad daylight and i saw the bottom half of a man's body and the brush by the tracks while driving to the beer store jeans work boots Maybe some plaid shirt peeking out. I think I just keep driving. Get my beer. Then bump past again to be sure. Yeah, that looks like a body. Park. Get out. Take a closer look. Okay, yeah. Somebody didn't make it home from the bar. If it was face down, I might consider poking it with a stick. This situation is more interesting, even amusing, than say scary, is my point. And I consider the man lucky and myself kind of unlucky having to deal with it. I'd call it in, obviously, once I figured he wasn't napping. But if I found a dead girl in the woods who'd obviously been murdered, that's not so funny or amusing or interesting or lucky. I say the man's lucky because you got to die. I mean, you might as well die drunk, passed out, die in your sleep, you know. But a girl dead in the woods, obviously murdered. Not funny, not amusing, not interesting, disturbing. And yes, of course the other is too, and I'm just screwing around. But there's something about the murdered girl in the woods discovery that to me feels unlucky. Finding a murder victim when you're not looking for one is like checking your lottery ticket to find you hit every number. And now you must collect a lifetime supply of nightmare. It feels like really low odds too, doesn't it? To find a dead girl in the woods Underneath a carpet Now what if you found three Not all at once Over time three dead girls Dead murdered girls with garrots Wrapped around their necks What if you found those three dead girls In three separate wooded locations And collected reward money For their discovery Would that make you lucky Unlucky Or just plain greedy Welcome to Dark Topic I'm your host jack luna this is a true crime happening the tipster mid-june 1987. a young woman named jacqueline accepts a ride midday from a bearded dark-eyed dark-haired though Pale 29-year-old wannabe biker type Riding a Yamaha motorbike aimlessly through the dregs Of the subsiding traffic flow Here in a shit part of Redding, California Liquor stores, pawn shops, drug addicts, prostitutes For every sucker, there's a dick For every dick, a sucker And bear with me, hear me out That's not meant to be crude, though it is It's just the truth of this situation The young lady is a sucker and the man on the bike offering a ride is a dick. That's all. For every sucker, there's a dick. You hear me? There's a sucker waiting for a dick to take advantage of them. And 29-year-old Robert Maury, though he seems sweet when he picks the cookie up off the sun sidewalk and drives her to some testy situation, is one mean cock sucker, as they say in these parts. And that's meant to be crude. One more time. It's just the way it is. Somewheres. He is a killer, likely a few times over by now. And when Jacqueline finally heads home after a long day of whatever girls do until the sun goes down in places like this, she's a little charmed by the reappearance of the bearded man on the bike that she now knows. As Bob, Jackie hops on. He's headed to Happy Valley to race with some friends, to party. To have some fun Would she like to come along? Oh she's not too sure But on the back of the bike now Flying through the woods There's no debate No real answer needed And she has a boyfriend But maybe this will be fine Maybe this will be fun And that's all But the trees are getting thicker And now the sky is getting darker And ahead is only a headlight Dirt road in the back of Bob Whose body seems tense now The conversation long dried up with a black top, and now she knows for sure when he pulls over out in the thick of nowhere that she's a sucker. And Bob, he's a dick. Jackie covertly slides her license from her wallet and slips it into the back pocket of her tight jeans. Nothing has happened yet, but as Bob snaps the engine off and kicks the stand, leaving them in the silent depths of the valley, she has a feeling that she may die out here and thinks to give her body a shot at later being identified. The ride has been scary. The silence, save the roar of the engine, had spoken volumes once they had left civilization. She'd made a quick decision and quick decisions often end up being poor decisions. She knows this, but Bob had been familiar and as he wraps the rope around her neck and demands her jeans be peeled off, she looks to the trees which too once seemed familiar. But now, as she's brutally raped, with a rope wrapped around her neck like a fucking dog collar, the trees only seem indifferent, soulless, much like her vicious attacker and Robert Maury. Do we all, deep down, assume that all in life is magic, all is good and well, that things will work out as long as we don't ask for trouble and if so, when we're in the trees in nature in the dark with something like Bob, is there a loss of innocence that can only be gained through being treated like the dirt we all end up being eaten by? Jackie, as a survivor, is one of the few that really knows. She was right there, rope around her neck being defiled by a killer, and though at least three more in her position will die, she does not. It isn't clear why, but once he's done... He drives her home, and the trees of Happy Valley keep still until daylight, when the breeze makes them slowly sway in the early morning sunlight, to the delight of coffee-sipping travelers. Isn't this a beautiful day? And back in Redding, the morning's traffic floods the streets once again, and a girl named Jacqueline showers, then goes to bed to hold herself in shame, and a man named Bob heads back to his apartment, upset that he didn't kill her. Why the fuck didn't he kill her? He'll get the next one. Robert Murray lives in an empty home where once lived his middle-aged landlord, Avril Whedon, until he killed her back in 1985. And why not Jackie, too? Who knows? Maybe it's not always the same. Maybe for a true killer, the mood has to be just right. Perhaps something of the trees. Had it been so indifferent. After all, the phone is ringing. It's Avril's mother again, no doubt. Who would have thought a single 48-year-old woman would have such a close relationship with her fucking mother? Hello? Okay, listen, lady. I just rent a room. How in the hell am I fucking to know where she is? Robert Morey slams the phone down. Then lights a marijuana cigarette. The ghosts of Vietnam swirling with the smoke. Figures in the curtains. Shadows. Made of light. A knock at the door. It's her brother now. Where is she? I don't fucking know. I just rent here, man. Slam. They're everywhere. In the phone, the curtains, now on the doorstep, and there's no amount of smoke. that will hide from Bob what he has done. Bob. Robert Maury. A dishonorably discharged Vietnam War vet. The budding serial killer. He decides to make some calls of his own and get three birds stoned at once. Secret Witness, a nonprofit independent crime solving hotline designed to be completely anonymous for the caller and from civilian donations offer reward for any tip leading to an arrest is the number Robert Mori would call over 20 times through his days of killing women in the mid-80s. The first, 48-year-old Avril Whedon, his landlord, whose house we just left in a haze of pot smoke and the shifting shapes of her tenants' demons, would be discovered after an anonymous tip came in to secret witness. The initial call didn't work out. Bob asked how much money he would get for sharing the location of a body. At the time, there was no reward in place for Avril Whedon, likely because her disappearance, had been so recent. The phone operator, Shirley, a 12-year vet of the service, would remember the man's voice when he called back later that summer of 85. Bob, as he called himself, had a way about him. Pushy, curt, the abruptness of the disconnection. It was almost as if the caller were making a ransom call, rather than providing information as a helpful citizen. When Shirley informed the man that there was a $250 reward for information on Avril Whedon's whereabouts on the second call, Bob perks up. 250 bucks Could buy a lot of pot. He's a fucking pothead, this guy. And he shares the location in the woods behind a car shop in Redding. Then he hangs up. A pair of officers are alerted and they check the location out, poke around a bit behind the body shop. One maybe gets bitten by a mosquito out in the woods there and... They call it an afternoon. Bob's impatient. He calls back for updates until he's informed that his tip has turned up nothing. Furious, Bob gets more specific. A word I can't fucking say. You'll find her under a rug, he says. Some cardboard and debris back there. Lift something up. This time, Avril is discovered. Her body badly decomposed from being out there all summer. Her skull beaten in by a rock bones in her neck broken in such a way that strangulation has determined the likely cause of death. Or maybe she'd been held by the rope while defiled, but had fought to her death by bludgeoning. We'll never know. For all the talking Bob did during his killing days, he wasn't much for it later on. Despite all the work put in to make sure this body is found, Robert Maury, aka Bob, apparently does not collect this Piddly amount of reward money, 250 bucks for a corpse fuck. But he knows now, maybe this is a way that I can make a little better cash. Perhaps he comes to his senses after this call. I mean, this is risky business. Seeing how, in at least two calls, Bob will implicate himself by saying the roommate, Bob or Robert, is likely involved. Which makes no sense to me. I feel as if one of Robert Mari's drug buddies made these calls but from the information it seems the belief is that Mari, Robert Mari, or Bob, I'll try to stick to Bob, was the same voice in every call involving the so-called tipster killer. Let me just chuck some of this noise in your ears so we can move on. I missed something here. The caller who introduced himself as Bob on an initial call, inquiring about whether he could collect a reward for information on a robbery that he did, Bob would use meters, when describing, say, the distance of a body from landmarks. When questioned later, Robert Maury was found to use meters rather than feet. Living here in California, why would he be using meters? I don't know, maybe he picked it up in Nam? I don't know how the fuck he did this, but he's using the term, he's saying meters rather than feet. Later on when he's questioned, which ties him to this, another tell that caller Bob was Robert Maury is that he mentions Frank on occasion. I, th- this this fucking Robert to Bob shit is unbelievable. I mean, if it was Richard, he was calling himself Dick, I could, I, you know, it's a little bit further away. But I mean, Robert to Bob? Use your imagination, man. Another tell that caller Bob was Robert Mari is that he mentions Frank on occasion. Like here, quote, tell Bob that Dave has talked to Frank and that will scare the shit out of him. End quote, and that fucking makes no sense. This whole thing doesn't make any sense. You'll find that there's very limited information on this, and I'm really trying to kick out uh, serial killers that are lesser known. And these are, you know, this is the battle here. But acquaintances of Robert Murray will let us share that. Okay, Bob, Robert Murray uh, was known by everyone, his victims, friends, the secret witness hotline, the cops. He would often refer to someone he thought of as a rat or a liar as Frank. Maybe something he picked up in NOM too. I don't know. I stuffed this mess in your ear because I'm sick of it being in my head and I don't know what else to do with it. Except to deduce that perhaps Bob was mentally ill. Or at the very least, so incredibly stoned most of the time that he just starts fucking with everything in the hopes of convoluting the case. In which case, at least in my case, mission accomplished. Robert, a.k.a. Bob, again I know I'm coming out hot and heavy here, but this is a lesser known case, with few sources to work from, and each source tells a slightly different version of events. I've gathered that Robert Marie, 29 years old, a.k.a. Bob, used some of these 20 phone calls to secret witness to implicate himself, telling Shirley, the operator, the 12-year vet, that there is a roommate named Bob that police should look at and that there's a clothesline in the backyard of that house, which was used to strangle Avril, the landlord of that particular home where he rented a room and that Bob had killed her over a drug debt. And then that Bob was forced to beat Avril's head in with a rock post strangulation as a way to involve himself in the murder actually committed by drug dealing thugs. And what the fuck? Like whatever. Are you with me? I'm not. I'm not even with myself. And I wrote this shit, studied this shit. These are all lies, obviously, and that's why it's hard to really break down. The tangled web of Bob is loosened spots, tight in others, kind of like your mama. It's a broken and twisted, this web, and really just needs to be swept away before anyone else gets tangled up in it. And yeah, that was Dark Topics first and hopefully last. Your mama Joe. But we're talking about murder here. We're talking about a serial killer here. So let's get serious. Investigators questioned 29-year-old Robert Marie multiple times. Even finding the clothesline in the backyard of Avril Whedon's place on one visit, stuffed beside a shed like caller Bob said it would be. But with apparently not enough to go on, Robert Marie is left to continue being an off-the-wall Vietnam War vet, doing landscaping jobs, arranging flowers as one-side job, which... Is hilarious to picture. Vietnam Bob reeking a weed, jamming snapdragons and daffodils into a busted bouquet. He's living in the home of his murder victim for a while in the mid eighties. And riding what is sometimes described as a dirt bike, other times a motorcycle around, picking up chicks to force himself upon, and on occasion, Murder. This is one of those areas where the cops do not give a fuck. And most of these girls have been known to stray and, you know, they're not following it correctly. Even though they got the killer calling himself in. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan. But the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I wanna be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. (laughs) Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you wanna learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, There's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value, especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off on limited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. Today. All right, everybody. Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog. With my little family, we're about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here in I have a interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health, and this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone could do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to Uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash darktopic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com Two Days After the vicious woodland attack on the victim only known as Jackie, Bob begins stalking another young woman, 20-year-old Dawn Berryhill. It's the summer of 87 now. The Avril Whedon murder is somehow behind Bob and now he's got his eye on the young mother whom he met through advertising his own room to rent. Dawn's mother, Diane, has been taking calls from the aggressive landlord-to-be. He asks extremely inappropriate questions like, has her daughter Dawn broken up with that boyfriend of hers yet? Oh, she has? Oh, she's working on it? Okay, excellent, excellent. Because, you know, I told her I wouldn't rent if that bum was involved. And Bob chats his next murder victim's mother up for a while, a mother who is busy trying to be a grandmother during these calls, as Dawn is currently out arguing and breaking up with her boyfriend so she can get this apartment with this fucking crazy bastard serial killer. Much like this entire story the situation here is ridiculous. Don's mother, Diane, is too polite to cut Bob off, and Bob's too impolite to recognize he's being an inconvenience on the phone while the baby is crying in the background here. And before we get to the rest, let's just talk about that for a moment. What the fuck is wrong with some people? I saw this guy in the grocery store the other day doing this talking a woman's ear off by the canned tuna and mayonnaise. And you could tell that she had shopping to do. And you could see that he was just there for a bag of rye bread and mustard to pair with a bologna loaf back at the apartment. And I did laps around the store observing this. I couldn't get enough of it. It's the kind of thing that I hone in on. Slowly, I was getting my stuff. I was just fucking throwing green peppers in there, garlic. I think I grabbed a zucchini. I don't know, a can of like old... Um, olives in the can. I like them in the bottle, but I have a can of um, black olives. and You know, like, what am I going to do with those? Make a fucking feta? Salad? I don't like that shit. But, I'm walking around, walking around, grabbing random items, watching the situation go down. And it's it's a hostage situation of sorts, to me. Like, it's an ear rape. uh, There's time theft going on here. And the woman is trying to leave. The woman. But... This guy keeps talking to her. He's he's got her cornered by the mayonnaise and the tuna. And I think it's because he's lonely. Well, he's got baloney at home. Uh, He's lonely, I suppose. Or he thinks he's getting somewhere with this woman. He'll later curse in his lair while slumped in a broken lazy boy, I assume. Intermittently smacking the side of his old box television to see the hockey game clearly. Drinking some cheap liquor. He'll curse her for leading him on earlier In the grocery store And she's just trying to be nice Because he's lonely, clearly But it's this very behavior That has led to him being alone And as her eyes darted to mine A desperate look in them I decided to put down I don't know, it was like a rutabag I was fucking polishing And do something about it I walked up and said Quote Hey, excuse me, I gotta get some tuna And I squeezed myself between them Then I said to the woman, quote, is it Miracle Whip or like this Hellman's that's best for potato salad? End quote. And she looked at me like now she had two fucking losers trying to Twilight Zone or grocery trip and said nothing back to me. So I says, quote, I think it's Hellman's and grabbed the Miracle Whip. Then left what I realized to be two fucking morons that were just chewing up time together. And all you could do is try. That was my move. You understand? I gave her a possible exit, and she opted to stay put. I might be fucking crazy with the way that I deal with the world, but I felt like I was being a good guy in that situation. I got treated, like, worse than he was being treated. I saw what I perceived as a really uncomfortable situation and tried to relieve it, but only achieved creating an uncomfortable situation for myself. And again, what the fuck is wrong with people? Maybe it's... Just me. And I hear that a lot. Anyways, back to Bob. And Redding, California. And the mid-80s. Back to a neighborhood where the liquor stores outnumber the grocery stores. And where a bothered woman puts her cigarette out on the forehead of guys who won't shut the fuck up. The thing about Bob, though, is that he wasn't just annoyingly persistent. He wasn't just that guy pushing you up against the tuna, trying to tell you about his whole fucking day. Trying to impress you with... Shit that no one will ever be impressed by. He wasn't that guy. Though he was. He was. But on top of that, he was also very intimidating. Very scary. Vietnam War vet. Hairy. Big ass beard. uh, Wacky look in his eyes. And somewhat charming, right? And once he'd figured out from the long-winded call with Don's mother, Diane, that Don was at the liquor store across the street arguing with Buddy, her boyfriend, he hung up. Abruptly as Bob was known to do was Secret Witness, and he sped his badass motor scooter over to the area, soon finding 20-year-old Dawn argue with her boyfriend. Dawn was spotted talking to a man in a motorcycle that afternoon, and then later she borrowed 100 bucks off her neighbor Goldie and arranged to have her child transferred from her mother's watch to Goldie while she went to score some drugs. To be clear, Goldie's just a lady who lives in the apartment who's being nice to this young mother. And that's the last time Don Berryhill, 20 years old, was seen alive. Heading off on a bad motor scooter with a dude to go buy some marijuana, he took her out to Happy Valley and killed her. After first helping Don get weed from a spot called "quote Big Mama's House," not to be confused with your mama's house, and I promise I wouldn't do that. I'm never going to do it again. Sorry, I promise. He took her to Big Mama's house for pot, then brought her out to the woods in a location quite close to where two days previous he'd raped then returned Jackie home. Though this time, just after midnight, Robert Maury wrapped a scarf around his victim's throat and didn't let go until both he and Don were done. Bob hid her body under a filthy mattress in the woods, a little something to cash in on a rainy day. And the 20-year-old mother was reported missing by both Goldie, the babysitter, and her mother, Diane, another babysitter. But because Dom was known to disappear for weeks at a time, no real investigation ever got going. That is, until Bob called back in to secret witness. Shirley, the 12-year vet operator, decides when she hears Bob's voice, hears he has another body that he'd like to cash out on, she decides to record Bob and play it for investigators. When they hear the voice, they're like, hey, this guy Bob sounds like our prime suspect in the Avril Whedon case. You know, Bob? And the noose finally begins to tighten, but not before Bob's own. Squeezes out at least one more life. June 26th, 1987. Four days after murdering Don Berriel, the mother of a six-month-old baby, Bob is at a diner sizing up his next victim. Her name is Belinda Joe Stark. She's covered in tattoos. She's out here in California alone, having an adventure. She's from Nevada. Uh, and at the moment, you know, she's serving coffee, eggs, maybe a bloody Mary. Two as serial killer. Belinda will meet the same fate as the others. First the motorcycle ride, next the slip knot over her throat, and eventually, in mid-August of '87, her decomposed body will be discovered not far from where Don Berryhill had been led to slaughter as well. Out here amongst the shivering trees of Happy Valley. He calls them all in. He collects hundreds of dollars, thousands maybe, at different locations where he's photographed by investigators, tipped off by the not-so-secret witness hotline. What he would do is well, he would be told to go to just a regular business and um, go at any time so that he wouldn't be feeling like he's been stalked, so he can go this week or next week or next month he goes and he's supposed to give an envelope to the person at the desk and the cops have told that person okay you give him this envelope but the envelopes are always empty and the envelope that he gives is supposed to have information about further information about who killed this person it doesn't matter that it's whatever time bob Usually goes like right away and they are watching and they are clicking photos of him. And this secret witness hotline at this time is uh, not as anonymous for the caller as uh, advertised, but it's just a fucking rinky-dink operation and Fourth Amendment rights and all that shit kind of fly out the window. Because of that, but also because it's the mid-80s. And, you know, go fuck yourself. You're killing girls. He buys a Honda Shadow to go with his Yamaha at, around this time, but he doesn't get to enjoy it his spoils for long as his fingerprints are lifted from a purse at the Belinda Joe Stark dump site. There's also a blanket there that is uh, shown to be one that she brought from Nevada. And finally, all of this ridiculous sloppy glacial crime case comes to court and Robert Mari is eventually sentenced to death for the three murders bumbled through here today. And man, I'd like to wrap up the court case ship and not like that normally, but it's what I got. And there's most certainly more. The tipster, Robert Maury, a.k.a. Bob Mari, had mentioned on one call that he knew of six unsolved murders. But those bodies had likely been discovered before he could have cashed in on them. And that's why he started dumping the girls in the woods. So he'd have a better chance at making a little scratch, a little quiche off of his crimes. And he's out of his mind, of course, Robert Mari, the so-called tipster killer. He's on death row in San Quentin Prison, still waiting for California to make its mind up. And if it wasn't mental illness, or plain arrogance, or stupidity, the way he handled his career as a serial killer, then maybe it was the weed, man. If you haven't gathered by now, Bob was a prolific podhead. It's what got him booted from Vietnam. And if you're smoking enough weed to get kicked out of Nam... You must be smoking with three hands. The one thing that really sticks with me in this whole case about Bob through this process of collecting scraps about his crimes is that weeks after he'd raped Jackie, the girl we spoke about in the start, then let her go. Jacqueline spotted him smoking beside his bike outside of a liquor store or a gas station or a convenience store, probably a fucking liquor store. That's all they got in these parts. She was with her boyfriend and she told him, hey, that's the guy. That's the guy who took me out in the woods, wrapped a fucking rope around my neck, made me tickle my clothes off and rape me, and then brought me home. And the boyfriend's like, oh, I'm gonna have to fucking do something about this. I'm gonna confront this guy about that. I'm not gonna call the cops or whatever. It's 1987. And he approaches Bob, the bushy-headed, bleary-eyed non-vet, and asks if, hey, hey, you know that girl over there? Pointing back to Jackie. Bob takes a hard look, and those eyes of his become clear. And why? Is her name? Is that Dawn? Jesus. How the hell is that da- No asshole, it's Jackie, my girl. She says she took her out to the Are you sure? Are you sh- are you sure that's not that's not Dawn? The boyfriend decides to leave this net alone. Something clearly is wrong with him, something's up. And the serial killer heads out on his bike to confusedly roam the redding streets trying to sort out in his mind how the girl he'd killed in Don Hill was still alive. And who the fuck is Jackie? This is the mind of Bob. What about the one with the tattoos from the diner? What was her name? Linda? Or some shit? Jesus Christ, how's he ever going to cash these chicks in if he can't keep them all straight? Robert Maury was on such a tear. And so fucked up that he was mixing up a girl he let go with a girl he killed within a two-day span. He was mixing up Don Berryhill, who he killed, with Jacqueline, who he let go. And in the world of serial killing, that's not just depraved or outstandingly sloppy or fucked up. I mean, it's just plain greedy? To rape and kill and smoke so much that you forget who you strangled and who you drove home? They should have had this guy a long time ago. They should have had him on the first one in 85, and he knows this, and he's just like, well, if they're not going to get me, I'm just going to keep buying bikes and calling secret witness and keep killing girls. Robert Murray's defense attempted to explain away his ability to point out the location of multiple bodies, as a result of him being a regular motorcyclist in the Happy Valley, as well as an avid hiker who just happened to find three fucking bodies. They also tried to appeal his sentence based on the secret witness hotline giving him up. But the judge, thankfully, some sense for once in this case, he was not having it. By the time this case got to him, and the details had been laid out in some confused fashion similar to what I just took a shot at, his head wasn't just shaking. It was spinning with the unusual nature in which the killer had decided to conduct himself. And by how he continued in court to act like this was all just one big misunderstand... Mr. Bob... Uh, Mr. Robert Maury Would you please, sir Just shut the f- But your honor- No No more The sentence is death Court adjourned The tipster Thank you for listening I hope that landed What a fucking mess that was Man, I'm sorry it took so long to get that out. It just, there was nothing there. It came out hot and heavy and I was like, ugh, is this for real? Somebody's got to be fucking this information up. <sighs> Probably me in the end as well. I'm part of that group now. Um, What do I have to talk about? I've been trying to quit smoking. Um, for me, smoking leads to drinking. And I know I've talked about this stuff quite a bit, but... Normally, I talk about the drinking first. I've, I've really realized that it's the smoking that really kicks me off. Because when you smoke cigarettes, what you're basically saying to yourself is, I don't give a fuck about myself. And if you don't give a fuck about yourself, then you're going to do all kinds of things that are detrimental to yourself, right? So it starts for me with the smoking. I mean, with the drinking, it could be kind of casual at times. But with the, the smoking is just so fucking bad. It's so disrespectful to yourself. I've been realizing that, I mean, I've been leaving the door open. I have an open door policy on my life. I always have. It's like, hey, like whatever you want to do, whatever you want to do, as long as I find it fun, let's do it. And if there's something that I want to do to myself, it's like, I don't give a fuck about myself. I don't do. It. I mean, I, I, I was saying to my father-in-law the other day because we were talking about all this, and he gave me some really good tips on how to turn my life around. He's like, hey, it's risk reward. Every time think what you're risking and what the reward is. And I've been holding on to that. And he's here now, and I, I speak to him every morning. He checks in with me. It's really great having him here. But I, I admitted to him the other day, I was like, you know, there's times, there's been times where I'm walking down this hallway. We're talking in this hallway in my house, our house. And, um, and I just hear myself utter out loud, I fucking hate myself. <laughs> and and I, uh, something about him, um, I felt okay saying that. And he immediately reacted in the way that he, I needed him to. And he said, I know exactly what's happening. I get it. I've been there. I've been there. It's risk reward. You got you to respect yourself. And if you don't respect yourself in the evening, in the morning, you're going to fucking hate yourself. And you'll find yourself muttering those things to yourself. So anyways, I did an advertisement for Better Health. And I talked about how um, you're, you could consider your, your brain like a, like a vehicle, right? Like he, but it's a vehicle you have to drive for your entire life. So in real life with a vehicle, you, you can switch them. You know, that one runs dead. You can get a brand new one. This is the only vehicle you got. And I've been walking around with this fucking kidnapper van, this busted up kidnapper van in my head, my whole life, something I don't care about, something that, that steals from me all the time, you know? And, and I got to think about my brain and, and I'm sure a lot of you can relate to this as, it's just not something to be shit on all the time. And and if I'm no good to myself, how can I be optimal for the people I care about? And that's the thing that really gets me. Um, I want the energy for my kids. I want the energy for my girl. I want the energy for my family. I want to be financially, physically, spiritually. You know, I'm dead sober, by the way. This is what you get. If you want me to be sober, this is what you get. I want to be mentally and career-wise. You know, I, I want want to be healthy in all those ways and I think I got one of those you know um career wise see even that has been kind of fucky but um you know I'm working on it <laughs> okay stay fair.